This summer, senior producer Robin Amer and I went to a park in Southeast Chicago. I am a news reporter. And on that day, in this park, children were playing. We were standing under a tree and birds were chirping. We talked about the parakeets. Okay, so let's get the monk parakeets too. You hear those? Oh, are the parakeets here? I thought they were just in Hyde Park. And everyone admired the day. But in the distance, you could hear diesel trucks rumbling on the avenue that leads into the industrial site where this facility would be located. I'm not kidding you, driving through this is so difficult. It's like playing Frogger, like you're literally like trying to get in between diesel trucks. How can you tell someone, like a youth, to go out there and ride their bike when there's diesel trucks on the road continuously? That's Daryl Fierce. He reports on environmental justice for The Post. And he has spent much of this year looking into this fight in Chicago. The city allowed a metal shredding company with a bad track record of pollution to move from a well-off white neighborhood to a working-class Latino neighborhood. I wondered, how could that be done? And I wondered what the Biden administration, which had vowed to intervene and scrutinize situations like this, would do. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, December 14th. Today, we're taking a look at how a battle over a scrap metal facility on the southeast side of Chicago is a test case for the Biden administration on environmental justice. And what federal intervention here could mean for similar fights all around the country. We were at a park to meet a group of activists who had been fighting against this facility, including a young woman named Yesenia Chavez. Yeah, so this is Rowan Park. Um, this is a park that's on the east side of the 10th Ward, and it's located right behind George Washington High School. Yesenia Chavez is a 27-year-old community college student who's lived in uh, the 10th Ward her entire life. Her family goes back to Chicago for three generations. Her grandfather moved there with a wave of other immigrants in the 1970s. Because he came to work at Republic Steel, which was one of the major mills that um, used to be located across the street from where we're at right now. Yesenia was worried about yet another polluting facility moving to her neighborhood when it had so many others. And she was particularly concerned about the health impacts. Because literally from the bench that we're sitting at, you can see the buildings where they're proposing to operate. And then if you look to the right of us, there's a school. She has a younger sister, Graciela, who's a student at the George Washington High School, which is right across the street from where the metal shredder would operate if it gets its permit. And she was especially concerned because Graciela has asthma. My immediate concern was like, what are my sister's lungs going to be like? You know, if she's exposed to this for a year, what are the effects going to be like? Like, Graciela's 16 years old, so she has her entire life ahead of her. You know, this isn't what I want to see for the rest of the youth in the 10th ward, including my sister. Like, they don't deserve more pollution. So tell me a little bit about this 
company that was opening up this scrap metal facility. Like, wh- what what do they do? What what is a scrap metal facility? The scrap metal facility called General Iron Industries had operated in Chicago for a century. This scrap metal company takes discarded metals, shreds it, and turns it into a new steel that can be used to make anything from a bicycle to a bed frame to a car frame. So it's basically like a recycling facility in some ways. It was a metal recycler, yeah. A very heavy industrial metal recycler where the carcasses of cars were stacked up in the facility. But over that 100 years, that area, Lincoln Park, had become very upscale and wealthy, and it was really out of place. And with this environmental problems and its fires and explosions, it had become a serious eyesore. So, So tell me about the fires and the explosions at this facility. There are multiple fires and multi-alarm fires that sent fire trucks racing into the community to put them out. There were explosions that shook Lincoln Park and people were just rattled by this. In addition to that, there were fine particles, breathable stuff called autofluff that basically resulted from the process of crushing cars and other metals uh, where you had fine particles of glass and metals and wood floating up into the air and down onto sidewalks uh, in this fluff. I was walking some of my um, some of my belongings from my old house to my new house. Laura Compton had lived a little farther away from the General Iron site and then bought a condominium closer to it with no knowledge of problems that it caused. And I noticed that the sidewalks in our new area were all covered with fur. She was walking through her neighborhood and encountered this fuzzy stuff, uh, her words, which she later learned to be auto fluff. And I was like, hey, to my daughter, I was like, hey, isn't it so silly? The sidewalks in our new area have are fuzzy. They're furry. Isn't it silly? And I thought that it was a funny thing. And then a, a week later, I found out, no, this isn't funny. This is the fluff from General Iron flying around our neighborhood, landing on our sidewalks and our playgrounds, on our gardens and things like that. And it was not funny. And I started work meeting with other neighborhood members and found that my neighbors had been fighting against General Iron for over 19 years. They had come to hate General Iron and would fight it because they were worried about the effect that the pollution uh, had on their children. Our intentions were to get General Iron into compliance or shut it down. Our like motto was uh, comply or goodbye. And so it was a very sustained fight in City Hall to convince representatives to get rid of it.
You know, it, it strikes me as kind of surprising that this facility would essentially be forced out of one residential neighborhood, but then turn around and rebuild in another residential neighborhood. Yeah, if you're surprised, imagine the surprise of residents in the Southeast. And when they learned that this was happening, it wasn't just a casual uh, reaction. It was an explosion of activity. They called their representatives on the city council and uh, said, how could this happen? And then they immediately began to organize to stop it. For the people who lived on the southeast side, the place where this facility was being moved to, did they see something explicitly racist, classist in this decision to essentially say this facility isn't good enough for this upscale neighborhood, but is fine for you people? Oh, most definitely. The disparity was obvious to people on the southeast side. It was egregious to a lot of people that they could have already uh, more than 80 industrial sites in Southeast. And then specifically to the area where it was targeted, there were already metal shredders. There were already recycling facilities. There were uh, trash dumps and uh, auto uh, facilities and rail yards, all of which are pollution sites. And Yersinia talks very forcefully about this disparity between North Chicago, where there's the gleaming skyline and there are the restaurants where tourists go, and there is Southeast Chicago, where residents live amid so much pollution. It puts us in a situation where we're like, are we not part of Chicago? Like, are we, you know, are we, are we different where we're not valued like, you know, the white folks up north? What's different about us? And then that leads to the vicious cycle of us having to look inward as if we're not worthy enough, like the white folks are up north. So what did the activists actually want? Well, the activists have been fighting against these pollution sites for decades. And they have fought an airport that a mayor wanted to build there and another incinerator that they wanted to build there. And they're saying enough of things like that. I don't care what I have to do. I don't care if I have to tie myself to the tree that's like right across the street from here, right across from their entrance. Like this isn't happening. Have you actually seen this place, this facility? I didn't get to see the RMG facility, but my colleague Robin did. Um, We're driving down this kind of like dirt driveway towards the Calumet River. And um, I don't know, it's a really industrial looking area. Like this road is barely paved and like, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Uh, And we were instructed to drive over the railroad tracks, which I see up ahead and between these blue shipping containers. And she got to talk to the CEO, Steve Joseph, during a tour. Hey, it's so nice to finally meet you in person. Hi. Yeah, how I'm are Randy. you? This is Robin Steve. Hey, Robin Eber, nice it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for having us. There was this 70-foot-tall shredder sitting idle and a pile of scrap metal stacked near it. I see, like, a Coldwell Banker sign, an air conditioning unit, metal fencing. It's literally anything and everything that 
we use as society when you're done with it, if it's made of metal. The CEO, Steve Joseph, was very sensitive to the material and other parts of the facility being photographed. I'll, I'll try and point you where, you, where, where I do or don't want pictures taken. So, Why were they sensitive about some parts of the facility not being photographed? Some of it is because of what they say is proprietary technology. But also, the fight was heavy on their minds. It's been so heated that they don't want people to see these piles because it's not indicative of the kind of stuff that will be there if and when they finally get a permit to operate the big shredder. So you'll have automobiles, you'll have uh, various mixed metals that are going up there. Um, You'll have buses, trucks, whatever it might be. But we expect to shred uh, probably 350 to 400 tons an hour when the the shredder is running. RMG had coveted uh, General Iron uh, for some time. And when they saw that it was in trouble, they kind of swooped in and it worked out for them because they had this campus already in uh, Southeast uh, Chicago. And so they had space to build a new facility there. And this company, RMG, says that it spent $80 million uh, building a state-of-the-art facility that would have none of the problems that the General Iron operation uh, to the north of the city had. We made a massive investment um, based on what we thought was the best site to do this in the city of Chicago. But yeah, we, we put our money where our mouth is here. We didn't do that until after we had what we thought was 100% buy-in from the city in, in writing. They worked behind the scenes with city officials in the administration that preceded the current administration. So Mayor Rahm Emanuel was mayor at the time this started, and Lori Lightfoot is mayor now. And RMG worked with officials in the Rahm administration to get the permits necessary to do whatever work it needed to do to start building this $80 million facility that they said would limit the fires and limit the explosions and would result in zero auto fluff. I've been to a lot of shredding installations around the country and and some out of this country, and I've never seen anything that approaches what we've done here from a total investment standpoint, from an environmental uh, safety standpoint, from a human health safety standpoint. Um, So, yeah, it's pretty disappointing to be sitting where we are right now, ready to run uh, and not being able to. Of course, no one knows whether they succeeded or not because it hasn't been allowed to operate. They haven't gotten the permit to operate. And, And why is that? Like, what happened that stopped this company from being able to execute on its big plan to start this new, improved facility in Southeast? Well, first, the Southeast community was outraged, which led to protests. And then there was a civil rights complaint to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, which led to an investigation by HUD. And then there was a hunger strike. And finally, the EPA got involved. That's after the break, when this fight in Chicago takes a dramatic turn and Washington takes notice. We'll be right back. 
So Daryl, tell me how this fight from these activists who were trying to prevent this facility from opening, how that escalated into a hunger strike. Even after a surge of complaints and protests, the city was granting permits that allowed RMG to build its shredder in their community, something they didn't expect. And when they learned about that, they were very angry. And so the protests began to escalate. Because we had protests, you know, we had public comment. We tried following the democratic process to stop this permit from being issued. And like, it just failed us in every single step. And so they felt that they had to take stronger action. And in December and January, they began to talk about and then plan the hunger strike. Uh, There was a press conference where I had announced that I joined the hunger strike. Um, I cried that day. And I was scared. Chicago has, I guess, some type of tradition of hunger striking to stop uh, things that are unwanted, like the closure of schools. And so this was very effective in generating attention not just in Chicago, but nationwide. For more than two weeks, activists have been on a hunger strike to stop General Irons' plans to move its metal scrapping business to the southeast side. She won't see my mother begging me to eat. She won't see my father begging me to say, when do we leave the southeast side? I'm not leaving the southeast side! The strikers we talked to said it was arduous. I'm just going to keep it very direct. Um, It was terrible. It was terrible. It was traumatic. It's something I would never in my life recommend to anyone. It's honestly hard to even talk about sometimes because, you know, like I experienced somatic symptoms. Like I had pain in my extremities. I like was having a hard time focusing in school just because I was so anxious about like the climate, the political climate, everything going on. Uh, A group that constituted or acted as a medical team ultimately in the fourth week of the strike for some and the third week for others, said that we are very concerned about your health. Mm-hmm. Many of you are not looking well. Yesenia Chavez said that she had lost energy. Her hair was falling out. Uh, and when she looked at herself in the mirror, she did not look well. Um, and so uh, the medical team advised them to stop. And it was Yesenia who said, I wanted to keep going. And I was like, no, like everybody else can stop and I'm going to keep going. Like, I feel like I can keep going. This wasn't the goal that I had set out to reach. And I told myself I wasn't going to stop until this permit is denied. And that's what I'm going to do. Yesenia told me uh, in an interview that, you know, I was at peace with potentially dying for this. We literally thought we would die before the mayor would do anything. That's incredibly powerful. So you mentioned that around this time, that's when the Environmental Protection Agency got involved. What was their interest in the situation and what did they do? EPA Administrator Michael Regan did something that EPA administrators rarely do. He intervened to stop or at least delay the start of this facility. He sent a letter 
to Mayor Lori Lightfoot saying that he was very concerned about the permits that the city had granted to build the facility and add certain features to the facility to help it operate. Now President Joe Biden's top environmental official told Mayor Lori Lightfoot in a letter that he has major reservations about the car shredding plant moving to the southeast side, raising civil rights concerns. Saying in part, quote, this neighborhood currently rakes in the highest levels for many pollution indicators used by the United States. He followed up on that letter by requesting a meeting with the mayor and then in May, he visited Chicago to talk with her. He requested a comprehensive environmental review that would take months. That alone delayed the facility for at least seven months. And then he took the added step of meeting with the protesters in the community, the Southeast Chicago community, and with these hunger strikers. How unusual is it for something like this to happen, where the head of the EPA is personally intervening in this kind of situation? This marks uh, a big departure from how the EPA has operated in the past. And it's in favor of environmental justice groups. For the Biden administration to wade into a situation like this sort of gives hope to groups that these things can be done. You know, this situation isn't resolved, but at the very least, already the Biden administration has delayed uh, for a great deal of time the operation of this plant. What does RMG say about this? The fact that they're essentially stuck in limbo with this big facility that they've invested a huge amount of money in that they now do not have permission to operate. They're pretty hot and (laughs) they've filed lawsuits against the city saying that the city has reneged on its approval of this permit. So it's very much up in the air about what will happen. But to date, the plant hasn't operated for something like uh, seven months. And RMG says it's losing money as a result of that. So at this point, it has now been more than seven months since the EPA intervened. This $80 million facility that's been built has not been allowed to open. These activists are still adamant that the facility should not be allowed to open. What are the possible outcomes here and what would the consequences be? There are two ways that this could all play out. The city could deny an operating permit, which would almost certainly mean that it would face a challenge from RMG to pay $100 million in damages for building on the Southeast, a facility that won't operate, that they'll basically have to tear down. In the other scenario, the city could grant the permit. And that would mean that protesters would have to find some other way to possibly stop the operation. It would also mean that the EPA would probably pay close attention to whatever happens at this facility and require certain monitors or something to show what the air quality is and what the health impacts are once it starts operating. The city has said that it will make a decision 
in January as to whether it will grant or deny the permit. And protesters are reading between the lines and believe that the city will, in fact, grant a permit. And they say they have no idea what they will do from there. What does Yesenia hope will happen? Yesenia is hoping for a new Southeast Chicago. You know what I mean? Like, we have beautiful natural marsh. We have beautiful natural landscape. We have parakeets that come every summer to our ward, you know? Like, the 10th Ward, in my opinion, is a gem. And it's just being devalued by all this dirty, polluting industry that's just worried about money. So not only does she uh, hope for a sort of transformation of how the city sees moving these sites to Southeast Chicago, but also stopping more of these sites and perhaps a cleaner energy operations moving there and employing people there. Daryl Fierce reports on environmental justice for The Post. This story was reported and produced by Daryl and Robin Amer, with additional production from Sabi Robinson and Corey Suzuki. It was edited by Renita Jablonski and Alexis Dio, and mixed by Renny Svernovsky. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's show, we've got a story about the great reassessment of work and what it means to be a quitter. I think everyone's grown and in their own way. And, you know, you just don't accept the sandwich you've been fed for a long time after something like this happens. (laughs) That's coming up on Wednesday. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 